Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would, uh, grab your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a few on the back table. Um, you can have one of those uh, as our gift to you. And uh, we are continuing in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 2 through 7. Sorry if it's a little dingy over here. Y'all getting feedback? Yeah? Maybe they can't hear it in the back. A little feedbacky. There, Yeah. We'll get it figured out. But so we only have like this two more Sundays. And this this was so this is crazy. This was the last time to set up in this room this morning. Because it's spring break and we get to leave it set up. We just have to push the kids' stuff to the side. So this was the last time, and in, in the Lord's uh, sense of humor, I w- had to do it on less sleep because it's daylight savings. And so it was just providential. He's like, I just want to give you one more fun setup. It's been eight years of setting up this room. Uh, about 425 times we've set up church together as a family. Uh, 425 times we've stacked chairs, we've unfolded chairs in different places, mostly here, but in a few different places. We've, um, we've taught the gospel to children in random rooms in the back, and we've set out folding tables, and we've got little folding chairs. We've always sat on really uncomfortable black folding chairs. We've set up the stages. We've hung lights. We've had lights installed. We've knocked down walls, and so uh, that song that we just sang that uh, Jesus doesn't fail is so good um, because Lord knows it's, <laughs> it's nothing that we've invented. It's none of our own brilliance, but it's the, it's the work and hand of God. Um, that he's got us and he's, he's holding us. Is that still ringing a little bit? I, I'm hearing it. I don't know if they're, they can't hear it back there, but it's, I'm, it's, yeah, so maybe if you can just turn it down, I don't know, maybe I'm talking too loud. Maybe it needs to be closer. We'll get this all figured out in the new building. So this is just, just two more weeks. Yeah, there it goes. That's better. Thank you for, I was, I was hearing it in my own head. Philippians 4, let's jump in and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 2. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, as you read through the New Testament, as you read through the book of Acts, as you read about all of these churches that are planted throughout the New Testament, and you read through Paul's uh, missionary journeys as he's advancing the gospel in all of these different regions, uh, one thing pops up over and over and over again. You see that women played a significant role in the leadership and the planting and the movement of the gospel uh, throughout all of these regions. 
Uh, we see that in the, in the book of Acts in the churches in Macedonia, and you see it especially here in the church in Philippi, where if you remember all the way back to when we began this series in Philippians, we met a lady named Lydia. She was the very first convert in Philippi that Paul shares the gospel with. She was the, the seller of purple fabrics. If you remember back, we talked about her. She was the modern-day fashion CEO, right? So she sold textiles that were dyed, so Paul meets her. And he shares the gospel with her. She's the first convert. She is, uh, probably has, has some resources, and she begins to let this church meet in her home and begin to grow. And then we meet another, uh, the second member of this church in Philippi that's planted at the very beginning of this letter is, a, is this slave girl, and she's uh, delivered of these oppressive forces and demons that she's plagued with. Paul helps cast them out by the power of God. And so women are present and active in the church from the very beginning in this church in Philippi. And this church in Philippi continues to grow, and there's women involved in leadership. There's women involved in advancing the gospel and sharing the gospel and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And here we're given, Paul calls out these two women in our text, Iodia and Syntyche, who he describes memorably by saying this about them. These, these are wonderful verses. These women who labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Beautiful verses about the role of these two women and their work in advancing the gospel. So these women were important to this ministry. They were important to this church. And the word that Paul uses to describe them is this, this term laboring side by side would be a word that would be similar to uh, what was used of the gladiators of the time, uh, which translates, it could have been translated, they fought with me side by side. They were in the trenches with me. They could, it kind of brings up this imagery of they, they smelled the arena. They were in the trenches. They were side by side advancing the gospel in the fight. These two women with me, Paul describes them. And then along with Clement, they all had their names in the book of life. Their names were in the Lamb's book of life. They were sons and daughters of God who through Christ would enter the kingdom of heaven. And so these women were straightforward. They were advancing the gospel. They were in the fight. And when you're in the fight, advancing the gospel side by side together, uh, there's often... Uh, tension that invades your lives because there's things that come against you. There's things that come against the church. There's things that happen in the life of the church and in the culture that they're in. So as they're advancing the gospel, they're living lives, presumably, of some tension. Um, and all that follow Christ suffer a level of tension as they're advancing the gospel that the uncommitted soul could never know. And then you think about the atmosphere of the Roman colony that they're in. It took its toll on these women. We're not sure exactly what was going on. We're not sure exactly of the tension that happened as they're advancing the gospel. But there was a bit of a falling out that's happened here. And Paul wants them to have the same mind. So there was a disagreement between them. There was 
uh, a disagreement. They could not agree. They could not come and resolve a tension that they had. And so there was this conflict that was jeopardizing the witness of the church and the vitality of the gospel in this town. And this tension became known to Paul. And so Paul addresses it in this letter in a very personal way. He He says, I entreat you both to agree in the Lord. I implore you to to think the same thing in the Lord. Now, I would imagine if you can just put yourself in the shoes of the Philippian church, uh, if anyone in this church, when this letter was being read to the Philippian church, if you were kind of nodding off a little bit, and they... And the, the reader was up there and just called out by name these two women, like me, if I just called out, like, and Andrew, you know, it's just like, and then all of a sudden I kind of started telling his business and something that, you know, everyone would be like, what is going on? You're like, everyone would wake up. I've got a couple of y'all that weekly nod off a little bit. I think you would, I, and you start doing that, wake you up. This is a great technique here. Um, they were certainly wide awake when these names were mentioned. Now, Paul was diplomatic, he was gentle, he was respectful, but at the same time, he, he, he just calls it out in the middle of this letter and all eyes were on them, I would imagine. Um, and then he doesn't just address them directly, but he asks for the intervention of a third party. I ask you also, true companion, help these women. So who is the true companion? Well, there's endless speculation uh, we don't know. Most commentators, I guess a, a, a common thought would be that this true companion would have been a respected leader in the church. Some believe it could have even been Luke as he came out of prison and made his way back to Philippi perhaps and was coming to the church. Some believe uh, or most believe that it's, the, it's an elder in the church, a, a leader in the church. Perhaps the person that was going to read the letter out loud to the church would have been the true companion. The point is, everyone in Philippi knew who the true companion was. We just don't. We just don't have the name. So most likely, uh, an elder or a leader in the church. So whoever it was, the true companion that's named here, the task was clear, was to help. Was to help. And so Paul essentially hands over this tension to the leadership of the church in Philippi and then gives them these tender guidelines. Now, do they respond? Do these two women respond? Do, their, do they have a, a, a one mind? We don't know. We don't read the outcome of it. Um, but what follows in the next verses is essentially a prescription for peace and unity in the church. So these most famous, most, some of the most memorized verses in all of the Bible are set up by this interaction. So there's a tension, there's a disagreement. Paul uh, asks the leadership of the church to help uh, walk through this well, and then he, it's almost like he's giving us some, uh, a prescription to say, and this is how we are to walk through these things. And he says this in four through seven, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, Great theologian Karl Barth did a brief survey on the book of Philippians and all of the commands in the book of Philippians. And he notes that the first command is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 18. And it says this, that they should be glad and rejoice. The second one is verse chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And the final command in the book of Philippians is 4.4 4 that we just read. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And from the force of these three commands that is building to rejoice, to rejoice, to rejoice, to rejoice, um, uh, Bart concludes there's this joy in Philippians is not a sentimental joy. It's not an abstract joy, but it is a defiant, nevertheless joy. In other words, no matter what you're going through, nevertheless, it's a defiant joy that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, it is a call to rejoice in the Lord. Nevertheless, in spite of your circumstances, rejoice. This goes against everything in our human nature when we face hard circumstances. Our, our knee-jerk reaction is to complain, is to not rejoice, and is to run the other way against rejoicing. It's to have a pity party. It's to get others on our team. It's to go, you know, it's all the things that we have. It's to complain. It's to grow. It's all the things that we as people in our sinful nature, when things are, don't feel like we should be rejoicing in, that we want to do, our flesh runs to. And here Paul says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always, even in the midst of tension, even in the midst of all of these things. Rejoice in the Lord in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Now remember, you're like, well, that's Paul. But remember, Paul is not writing this. He's not penning these words in a Roman cafe sipping a cappuccino. He's not poolside with his drink of choice with a little umbrella in there and just say, rejoice, my friends. Don't worry, be happy. Choose, choose your joy. And you're like, well, okay. No, he's in prison. Paul is in prison. He is not sure his fate. He is not sure if he will live or if he will die. And it is not up to him. Yet he writes, in the midst of this, rejoice again. I say, rejoice. And it's as if he's answering the question that we're all thinking as we hear him say that. Like, are you serious? Rejoice? He doubles down. He's like, rejoice in the Lord. And if you're like, okay. Again, I say, he just, he, he wants, he does not want us to miss it. He doesn't want us to walk past it. He doubles down in his command that God's people in Christ, no matter what we're walking through, have 
and can rejoice. And if you notice these words, there is no room for a loophole. I love to find the loopholes. Yeah, but if you come over, you know, like, let's see what the word really means. It's like, no. Always, always, regardless of circumstance. Here we're called to find our joy in the Lord, not in what we're walking through. Not on if things are going really well. Not if things are going swimmingly. Paul is living it, and he's calling his brothers and sisters in Christ in this church to live and abide by that as well. Um, <clears throat> and so what we see here is something carefully defined, and it's, and it's a definition of what Christian joy really is and what Christian joy really looks like and means. And it's a life lived with God. And it's a rejoicing that comes from the Lord. And it's a rejoicing that is found in the Lord. In other words, Christian joy is rooted in what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing, and what he will do. What the Lord has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Blaise Pascal, he was a famous mathematician. He was a brilliant thinker. He was a genius of his time. He was a Christian thinker. Uh, he was a philosopher. He was many, many things um, long, long, long ago. And the reason I bring him up is because there's this story about him that is remarkable that he, he wrote down uh, his conversion experience uh, he penned this, this statement, if you will, and he had it sewn into the lining of his coat. So the only person that knew it was there was his tailor and himself, and it wasn't discovered that this was in here until after he passed away. Um, and he writes these words. Um, he says, in the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, and then in all caps, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, your God will be my God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him, I fled him, renounced and crucified him. Let me never, ever be separated from him. He is only kept secured by the ways taught in the gospel, renunciation, total and sweet, complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director, eternal and joy for a day's exercise on earth. May I not forget your words, amen. He had it written in his coat. And presumably every day, it would be a reminder to him of the source of his joy. 
that it was found in Jesus Christ, that God saved him through Christ, that God gave him the eternal living active word of God through Christ, and he can know him, and he can have relationship with him, this brilliant man, and I love that no one knew it except his tailor until he passed. Um, and this is the memory of his fiery, joy-filled conversion. And Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord always, again, I say rejoice. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think on one level it does for you and I. What is he calling us to remember? Remember the joy of your salvation. Whatever you're walking through, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever hardship has, is bearing down on you, Paul's calling us to rejoice is not just a sentimental, abstract rejoicing, but it is a rejoicing knowing that Christ has saved you, that Christ has rescued you, that he is good that we can cling to him and we can cling to this joy of our salvation no matter the stresses that bear down on us. And all of us certainly have stresses. Every one of us is walking through something, most likely right now, that is, seems almost unbearably stressful. And if you are not, uh, wait two months. Wait till tomorrow. Wait till next year. It's coming. All of us experience these things, these tensions, these stresses. And Paul is calling us, even in that, to cling to the joy of our salvation. Even in the midst of these tensions, when we're a people that are advancing the gospel together, when we're partnering together in the gospel, there's stresses that inevitably come our way. Because we're living as kingdom citizens and the world around us is not going to quite be able to make sense of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that in and of itself is going to cause stresses and tensions. That in and of itself is um, a strange thing that has its own unique set of tensions. And so when even that happens, we can rejoice even in the Lord. Um, and we can cling to him in any and every circumstance. Nevertheless, we can rejoice in our salvation. Uh, we can echo with David in Psalm 40 with this sentiment. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He drew us up out of the pit. We can rejoice in that. Or we can concur with the apostle Peter. He writes these in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. When you think of what you have been saved into, it produces in you joy and it bubbles over into rejoicing no matter what it is we're walking through. So church, Whatever you're walking through right now, there's tremendous stresses, even in this room. In fact, just yesterday, someone was sharing with me that they're under such intense stress 
that their retina is separating from their eyeball. I don't know what that means. It sounds horrible. Like the doctor's like, you're under so much stress that there's literally something physical happening in your eye with all the, you're like, that's a lot of stress. I know that there are those of you in here that are carrying things that are so weighty, that are so difficult. Cling to the joy of your salvation today. Um, He is good. We can also not just cling to the joy of our salvation, but we can also look over the story of our life as we see how the Lord has grown us and moved us and shaped us, and we can see the very providence of God as he has walked with us, the protective care of God throughout all of our days, as he has guided, as he has intervened in areas, as he has provided for you, as he's delivered you from certain things, And so as you think back on your story and your journey as you walked with the Lord, you can take joy knowing that the very providence, the protective care of a good and sovereign God has been with you and has walked with you, and that should bubble up within you joy. It should cause us to rejoice. And it's also one more. It's a rejoicing knowing that he is coming again one day. It's a rejoicing in our salvation and what he saved us from. It's a rejoicing in the fact that uh, his providence has been with you all along the way. And it's a rejoicing knowing that Jesus Christ will come back again one day and that your name is in the Lamb's book of life and that your future is secure. It's a great hope. And knowing these three things, these pillars, we can say, nevertheless, I rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And now he goes into these imperatives. So the first one was rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, and it goes into a second imperative that the Apostle Paul lets us know. Let your reasonableness, verse five, be known to everyone. So here's another command, if you will. He introduces a relational quality to the, the, basically, your rejoicing in the Lord in any circumstance produces something in you. So it, it moves you to, a, it's a relational quality. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So your rejoicing produces something in you relationally with one another. It can be translated in other places, um, softness or gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. And so what Paul is doing as he's walking us through how we are to be unified as a gospel people, as kingdom citizens, he says your rejoicing in the Lord should produce within you a gentleness. And he's drawing on the character of Christ. Jesus says, for I'm gentle and lowly, he says of himself. So if you're really rejoicing in the Lord, it will produce a gentleness in how you speak and how you interact with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. In a harsh and combative world that we live in today, um, having a spirit of gentleness is disarming and it gives you opportunities to continue to advance the good news of the gospel in this world that we live in that's angry and divided and is siloed. Gentleness goes a long way. A gentle word goes a long way. A spirit of gentleness is a healing balm to one another. 
a word of encouragement and gentleness to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, is needed. We live in a sarcastic, just sort of like do-your-own-thing world, and the church is called to build up all these one another's in a spirit of gentleness, that a kind word would go out to one another that would build up the body of Christ. We need that. And then uh, let's not skip over in verse five, this little but strong phrase, the Lord is at hand. Did you see that? The Lord is at hand. Or it could be translated, the Lord is near. The statement gives light and gives life to all of these imperatives, to rejoice, to having a gentle, uh, let your gentleness or reasonableness be known to everyone. It gives light and life to these words. So both the Philippians' joy and gentleness and the following command that he's gonna say not to be anxious about anything, not to worry, is rooted and, and, and brings life to the reality that the Lord is near to you, that he is close to you. Now, what does that mean? I think Paul is getting at his, his presence is near to you. The presence of God is near to you. He's not far off. He's not a distant God so that you can walk through this life. You can rejoice. You can do all these things. Why? Because the Lord is near to you. He is close to you. He's walking with you. He is ever-present help in our time of need. So you can rejoice. You can walk in gentleness with one another. He's here. So his nearness, he's, the Lord is near, is, is that reality that he is present, that he is near? It's also, I think, two, two-sided. His return is near. He's coming back one day. So we can live in such a way knowing that he is with you and that he's coming in full again one day. And then he gives us the next imperative, do not be anxious about anything. Now remember, again, Paul is not lounging poolside. It's not don't worry, be happy. There's no detachment here. Danger is real for him. He doesn't know his future. He doesn't know his fates. Yet he still says this to this church and to you and I as God's word. Do not be anxious about anything. It's like he's preaching this to even his own heart. He declares, stop worrying about anything. Really? It's a remarkable statement. Which he knew, so by writing that, he knew that this church, he knew that these people, that, that, the, that the men and women, the people of God were worrying about a lot of different things. Is anyone in here worrying about something in their life? Okay, well, let's, I'm done. <laughs> we all do. We all have things that plague us with worry and anxiety and fear and trepidation. There's entire, like, there's, there's an entire market for to help people with that. The book section for worry and anxiety is enormous because we're a people longing to find solutions for these things because they plague us. Paul's command not to worry, his imperative not to worry because God is near you really echoes Jesus's teaching in Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Listen to the words of Christ. 
Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, Jesus is teaching this to you and I, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need all of them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Those are Jesus' words. Did you catch that? Something that I've never thought about until this week as I was reading that. When he says, we need to stop worrying. He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. In other words, Jesus has just said to the believer, worry is pagan. Unbelievers, the pagan world, they're the ones that worry. We have God. Why do we have to worry? I mean, look at the birds. Look at the grass. Does he not care more than about you? He's going to be near you. He is for you. He's sufficient for you. Are you not of more value than they? And Paul cuts to the chase as well, just like Christ. Do not be anxious about anything. It's similar language. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. Commands here. Um, and the corollary to stopping worrying, to, to putting, to quelling anxiety is to take up Paul's following command, which is to pray. All right, well, how do we do that? He tells us, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Uh, pagan prayers were uh, devoid of thanksgiving. They were petition-based. But a truly Christian prayer, a joy-filled Christian prayer is seasoned with thanksgiving. Because a thankful heart is the posture of grace of the child of God. So a Christian prayer is a glad remembrance. A glad remembrance and filled with thanksgiving of all that God has done through you. All that God will do and that all that God will do one day for you. 
We're a people of great hope, and so we can have joy-filled thanksgiving in our prayers, not just requests, not just uh, do this and do that, and I'll do my part if you do your part. It's not transactional. It's a rejoicing in what God will do through Christ. It's a glad remembrance. So at the root of our prayers, Paul says, is a thankful heart for all that God has done in our lives and all that he will do in advance the gospel together as God's people. I believe our prayers, our prayer life, following all of these imperatives that he just stacked up, mirrors our actual disposition in life. We're either a people, a Christian, a believer in Christ, filled with thanksgiving and grace, pouring out for all that God is doing and will do and wants to do. And so we can just let that spill out over our lives as a people of rejoicing, nevertheless of whatever you're going through. Or we can be a Christian with furrowed brows and demands of God. Which are you? Thanksgiving-filled requests Rejoicing in the Lord always, our furrowed brows. God, you better do this. You better do this. You better do this. The Christian life, the Christian prayer life is to be adorned with thanksgiving. Why? How can we do that, you say? Because God already knows the outcome. So we can just trust him. He knows all things. He holds all things. And the, 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 uh, the force of all of these things, it's building up the, uh, all of these things compounded on each other that Paul just walked through in these few short verses that keep building and building and building and piling up on itself to rejoice, to have a, a reasonableness or gentleness about you with one another, uh, to know of his nearness and to pray with rejoicing and to pray with thanksgiving and grace leads us here to our last verse. And this is the result of all of these imperatives that are building and stacking up in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds as joy-filled believers in Christ advancing the gospel together in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is a very, if you've been a believer for very long, this is a very, um, you've heard this a lot, and I don't want you to miss it this morning. I don't want you to miss what this just said. This struck me anew. The peace of God not, uh, not like you'll find peace kind of over here or you'll experience some peace in your life. No, no, no. If you live this way, if you stack up all of these imperatives that Paul in the gospel is telling us to live in and move in and breathe in and walk in, here's the result. The peace of God, God's peace, his shalom, the same peace that Jesus said be still, peace, and calms the waves of the storm in the boat. That peace, God's peace, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that can calm the raging waters around you is now yours, and it guards your heart, and it guards your mind in Christ Jesus. Whew. That peace 
God's peace is mine? It's yours? I need that peace. I don't experience it as often as I want to. But Paul, wonderfully in his word, gives us this gift that says, here's how we get it. God gives it. Should you walk with him in this way? I need the peace of God, not just an ethereal, nice-to-have peace that sort of exists out there in some random reality. No, the peace of God that God possesses now imputes and gives to you and I, his beloved children, sons and daughters. Jesus says the exact same thing. John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Jesus just said that. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, so let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We have the peace of Christ residing in us, imputed to us, given to us. That's how we can rejoice always again. I say rejoice. Church, let's bow our heads in prayer. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up. Um, And let's just, I want us to spend a moment here um, in some quiet reflection I want you to know that God wants to give to you his peace, which transcends the peace that surpasses all understanding is now ours in Christ Jesus. And it wants to guard your heart. It wants to guard your mind. But I want you to think through your life and maybe ask the Lord that he would help you do these things we just walked through, that you would rejoice Nevertheless, no matter what's going on, maybe that's you this morning. It feels hard to rejoice because you're in a circumstance that is tough, that's troubling. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Maybe for you, the Lord's calling you to walk in gentleness, in tenderness, in reasonableness with someone, with everyone. Would you ask him to help you in that? That in your relationships, that you would walk in a spirit of gentleness with one another? Maybe for you, it's that you need to remember that the Lord is near. That he's close to you. That he hasn't left you alone. That he's not distant, that he's not far away. Maybe for you, you need to let go of some crippling anxiety that plagues you day after day after day. Do not be anxious. The Lord is near. He's close to you. And all of us, we need to pray with thanksgiving. He's done much. And in doing those things, church, we gain the very peace of God. So would you take a moment, whatever that was for you, maybe it's all of them, and sit with the Lord.
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Church, we stand and let's praise him.